hoping to speak to you from 2 Kings and chapter 7, if you want to uh, follow that in your Bibles, though I'll probably use a different translation to you, the NASB, but uh, it'll only be one or two words that may differ from what you're reading if you're using an in inferior translation. Uh, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, just wanted to hear that, Andy, just a little chuckle. Um, it's, good <laughs> it's good to be uh, with you. I'm I'm very struck by the reality of how God uh, breaks in and changes things. And I was listening to the Today program recently, which I listen to often at breakfast time, where if you hear it, John Humphreys bullies his guests and uh, argues with them. And I was fascinated that uh, in the recent program, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, he was talking about the uh, King James Bible, 400 years People are celebrating the reality of its uh, historical significance. And he said that it's a book which uh, explains or defines a moral code. And uh, I was fascinated that he had with him some guests, one of whom was uh, a, a Church of England guy. I think I don't know who he was precisely. But he, he interrupted uh, John Humphrey. said, no, 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 it's not. It's not a book of moral code. And John Humphrey said, I never thought I'd hear a religious leader said the Bible is not a book explaining a moral code. And he said, no, no, it isn't at all. It's a book about how God comes and delivers us. I thought, oh, well done, well done. That's so great that he nailed that, that it's not some imposed uh, system. It's a wonderful story of God's great uh, deliverance. And the Bible's full of God's interventions. And church history is full of God's interventions. You can't put a graph on the growth of the church in the New Testament. You can't say, right, this is where it is now. In five years, it'll be there. In 20 years, you can project into the future. That's the way it will go. It simply doesn't work like that. Church history is full of times where it looks almost as though Christianity's been forgotten. And suddenly, God breaks through. There was a very famous quote of a bishop saying, no one ever believes the gospel anymore. It was the very year that George Whitfield got converted. Behind him, the Wesley brothers, this nation came alive with the gospel again. Incredible breakthroughs. And uh, in the Old Testament, similar, you'll find stories of when the people of God seem to be in very great decline. And then God breaks through. And it's quite clear the gospel salvation is from God. It's about interventions from God, how he steps into the situation. And uh, you'll find it's full of those sort of things. I've been reading uh, more recently about the 1859 revival, uh, which took place, it started actually in New York, where one guy began to pray, and he put a notice up saying a prayer meeting uh, would be during the lunch break in this office and uh, he prayed on the first day, and it was uh, nearly the whole hour had gone, and just two or three other people joined him, and then gradually just went on for a little. And then there was a crisis in the banking in New York after a few weeks of uh, the prayer meeting having started, and numbers began to gather to pray until actually uh, the churches all opened at lunchtime, and they said there were tens of thousands praying for God to sweep in to the nation. And then you can read about it, the 1859 revival in the States. One million people were added to the churches in America in that year. And then it swept across uh, initially to Ulster. Uh, Scotland came down through 
England. You can read detail about it from uh, Edwin Orr's great book, The Second Great Awakening, he calls it. And it shows how town after town, God just came sweeping in uh, to the UK. And again, a million people were added to UK churches in that year and the year that followed. On the back of that came a great awakening in terms of missions. Uh, you had Spurgeon preaching in London, uh, Hudson Taylor going out to China, uh, the, what were called the Cambridge Seven, those students, City Stud, went off to China. And there was a, it was almost like a wave went right around the world, uh, starting in New York with one man praying and then God coming in power. God suddenly changed. And you'll find that the Bible's full of stories like that, and church history is full of stories like that. God suddenly breaking in to something that looks quite dormant, almost hopeless, and suddenly God is moving again to demonstrate that the church is not something like a business you can project. No, no, it's the activity of a personal, holy, interventionist God who stakes and acts and does stuff uh, in his own pleasure and with his own power and using the instruments he chooses to use. So, with that background, the story we're looking at is a time when the, the people of God are in a besieged city. Uh, they're surrounded. They're cut off from f- supplies of food and drink. And it looks like everything is over. In fact, if we had time to read the previous chapter, you'd see they're on the borders of cannibalism because, wow, it's, all, it's nothing to eat. Everything's terrible. And then suddenly they're praying, and Elisha, who was the prophet at the time, makes a statement which uh, looks like it's impossible for it to happen. So we'll just read then the first few verses from 2 Kings chapter 7. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. Now there were four leprous men in the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here till we die? If we say we'll enter the city, famine is in the city. We'll die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come. Let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we will but die. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians, to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight. They left their tents, their horses, their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. They returned and entered another tent 
carried from there also and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. We're keeping silent. If we wait till morning light, punishment will overtake us. Therefore, come, let's go and tell the king's household. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for stories of extraordinary interventions. Thank you that our hope is always in the living God. And Father, I thank you now that we can spend time looking at this ancient story. And Father, we ask you, in the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit might rest upon us now. So that as we speak about this passage, you will make it live to us. We might hear you in our hearts. Holy Spirit, please come and be active here, shaping and forming our thinking, our, our conduct, our aspirations. Let your word do us good. Please, Holy Spirit, do what we cannot do by the release of your power amongst us now. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're having a promise here that by tomorrow, food will be cheap and easy, everything will be okay, the situation will have been extraordinarily transformed. It's an amazing promise, it looks kind of impossible, and uh, one of the leading soldiers says, well, that could never, ever happen. And uh, actually it does happen. We think, well, how, how's it going to happen? I guess it is that God uh, will raise up, as it were, some kind of SAS crack troop, you know, sort of people who fly in in helicopters and uh, do extraordinary things, change everything. There's going to be uh, some advanced soldier group who will break out and do something. Uh, maybe like David's men. Do you remember David at one time said, oh, for a drink of the water from the well that's at Bethlehem. And uh, he only had to say it. And some of his real mighty men said, come on, let's do it. And they, they rushed down and broke through and got the water. Yeah, I guess it's going to take some very tough guys to do this. Well, that's what you'd expect, isn't it? As you look at the story, as you hear the announcement, something's going to happen. Well, of course, we know better. We've read what happened. And actually, the story turns not on four tough guys, but on four lepers. And uh, the lepers, as would have been a situation in those days, uh, regarded as dangerously sick with a disease which was thought to be uh, very catching and scary, they were put outside the gate, outside the city wall, and uh, they would have been regarded as ceremonially unclean anyway in the Jewish culture, and uh, people would have perhaps in mercy have normally uh, let food down to them, baskets of supply, uh, some compassion would have expressed kindness uh, to these guys outside the city. But on this occasion, there's nothing in the city. There's no food for them. And so, well, what's the point? And they reach this kind of moment in their lives when they say, look, we're going to die anyway. Why don't we just cast ourselves on the mercy of the army? I mean, we're going to die. Why not? I mean, they may kill us, but let's go. And as I looked at that and been looking at this and meditating on this lately, it really struck me the story turns on four guys who've got no other agenda. They've got nothing else to look for. And that's how the adventure breaks out. And as I looked at that, I thought, wow, the power of people who've got no other agenda. The power of people 
who are not saying, well, we could do this, but uh, if you do, don't forget, uh, what about the ramifications? What about the economic results if I do that? What about my reputation? What about my hopes for advancement? What about, and so for us, many times, we're not as free as these guys. These guys were so free because nothing else mattered. I just thought of the incredible power of people to whom nothing else matters. They're just totally reckless. Because no other consideration is clouding the issue. So they are frighteningly available and powerful. And I was just thinking, that's probably one of the marks of the early church. That what happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus changed their value system so amazingly that actually from now on, nothing else really mattered. They were absolutely available. They were transformed by what Jesus did. And it made them see living for Jesus was all that mattered at all. They were utterly reckless. And I was thinking how very, very different that can be to us. How many times do we lose the opportunity of starting an amazing story? Starting an extraordinary event because, well, actually, there is no other consideration. Nothing else matters in comparison. And Paul said in Galatians 6, he says, I glory in the cross. And we can sing songs about the cross, can't we? We, we love songs about the cross. And it's possible even to get kind of nostalgic, but sentimental, about the old rugged cross, and we love to think of... But Paul said this, I glory in the cross by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. He's not saying I glory in what happened to Jesus, although obviously what happened to Jesus is the center of it all, but he's thinking of what happened to him as a result of the cross. It kind of cut him free. Kind of said, no, no, that's the end. You see, it's interesting, these guys outside the city, they realized there's nothing in the city. It's quite a discovery. There's nothing in the city. There's a man that was with Paul. Uh, he's called Demas. He's referred to two or three times in epistles that Paul wrote. The last time he's referred to is in Second Timothy, Paul's last letter. He says, Demas, whom he'd referred to quite warmly before, he says, has left me, having loved this present age. He was, he was a co-worker with Paul, but he suddenly got his eyes on the city. He suddenly saw something that glittered, something that offered an alternative, and, and he fell in love with it. He just lost his heart to it. And Paul says, he's gone. He suddenly had another agenda. Paul didn't have another agenda. Paul said, no, the cross has crucified me to the world. Francis Schaeffer wrote a great book called Death in the City. There's death in the city. There's nothing there. And we can sometimes think, but if only, if I, it's just, you know, I, I can have all kinds of ambitions for the city. Now, we need to be realistic. Paul says this. We have dealings with the world. Of course we do. We don't all become monks. But we live as though we had no dealings with it. There's something that God has done to us that has radically changed our motivations so that we might even excel in the city, but it hasn't got us. It's not like we think, well, there's hope for me. No, no, no. Something radically has happened that set me free from its power to allure me, to give me another agenda, to give me other hopes, other things. No, the, the cross has set me free from it. 
And so Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, if one died for all, all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If one died, if it took that, then we're all dead. We don't live for another agenda anymore. We, we side with Jesus. We identify with Jesus. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside Go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. So there, it's a kind of theological statement in the story we're looking at. It's a fact. They're outside the gate. They're outside. There's nothing inside for them. And they're reckless. They've no other agenda. And they're scary, actually. They can make a story happen. And Paul is saying, look, one died for all. So that those who live, there's a change of value system in our hearts. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him who died. Let's go outside the camp to him. He went outside the camp. He carried the cross outside the city. He died outside. Now let's go out to him. I know when I got converted, that was one of the hardest things, to go outside. Because I loved so much that was inside. In fact, when I first got converted, I I got that that invented phrase we've used, ask Jesus into your heart. So it's like I've got several idols. Would you like to be one as well? There was no kind of turning from. God wants to cut us free from a city that's already dead. There's nothing there for us so that we can have an adventure with him in a completely new context, outside. You free to serve the Lord? I remember when uh, once one of our young guys at the Brighton Church that I've been identified with for 30 years, our student worker, his name is Tom Eaton, he led a, a, a summer team uh, down into uh, Ghana, actually, West Africa. And uh, he came back, and he came with Julie, his young wife, and stepped into my office and said, I want to talk to you. He said, while we were in Ghana, God spoke to us. I thought, oh, boy, Tom's going to Africa. And he said, he said God spoke to us and called us to Japan. Japan? Because <laughs> you do go to Africa to get called to Japan. But it was, uh, it was phenomenal. And... Uh, I thought, well, what about, he's got three little blonde children, and, uh, you know, what about what their, their future, their education? What, what about, what about? No, God's called us. And I've since visited him in Nagoya, where they've got a church started. Because actually, whatever, it's him we live for now. All other considerations are secondary. You can start an adventure when it's like that. The story, the story can begin to unfold when God finds people who don't have another agenda. There is no other thing. I love the story Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds treasure in a field. It's like, you know, he's wandering in this field. He's full of strike. What's that? Digs around, opens the lid. Wow! Look at this! Treasure! And it says, for joy, he sells everything he's got in order to buy that field, because what is found in the field? It doesn't say, oh, if you, if you become a Christian, you have to sell all you've got. Do you have to? Mm. No, 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 for joy. 
look what I've found. Everything else is secondary now. Or it's like a pearl merchant, he said. Jesus said, it's like a pearl merchant who, yeah, a pearl merchant, what's that? Well, it's a guy who's gathered all kinds of jewels. Maybe he knows their history. You know, look, look at this one, this beautiful one, this one, I can tell you where it came from. It was in the royal family, in the Tudors. I mean, that, that, the history of this gem, I've had it. Look, that's one. Here's another one that was uh, from the Middle East. Uh, a sultan had that. He passed it down. I bought that one. This one it belonged to a Texas millionaire. That's an amazing... I mean, my jewel... What is that? Oh, my word. <laughs> you, do you want... You can have all that. It says, for joy, he sells. Not trash, but things that mattered to him. He sells for joy. Everything else, because of the superlative value of what he's discovered. All his values have changed. These guys, they didn't have a lot of choice. But they were reckless, and they were powerful, because they had no other agenda. These days, uh, I, 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 I travel quite a bit, often at airports. And, uh, do you know it takes forever to get on an airplane? You have to get there about an hour earlier than you had to. And uh, you come up to the security again and again. You know, jacket off. Okay, jacket off. Belt off. Okay, shoes off. Last time, watch. I said, watch this. I watched. What? And there, please. Everything. You know, you're shuffling along, holding your trousers up. And you just you think, what is going on here? No holes in your socks. You know, feel such an idiot. You're walking through. And you think, why is this happening? Why? All over the world, people are shuffling along. Security. Why? Why? i tell you why. Because there's some guys out there who don't care if they die on airplanes. They don't have any other agenda. Now, they're horrific. They will rip families apart. They'll kill the parents of children, husbands of wives. I mean, they're just merciless, misled people. But the power of people who don't have another agenda is pretty remarkable. So the story turns on these four who have no other agenda. Let's move on in the story. Uh, where they go down to the camp. I can imagine them as they're getting there uh, to the camp. And I guess they're, they're, they're thinking, well, let's go and see. There's an army here. They're killing us. These are scary guys. And uh, as they're getting closer and closer, I expect they think, oh, don't step on any twigs. You know, they're going to hear us any minute. Who goes there? You know, where's the sentries? Where are we going to meet the first line of defense? And there's no voice. There's nobody. And in fact, they, they stumble on, and it says in the story, they've gone. It's completely changed. Every, every night, it's changed. And really, again and again, the Bible prepares us for that kind of thing. That's why that guy was so good on the, the Today program. So, you know, the Bible's about God delivering. That's what the Bible's about. Right from the Exodus, when there are two million people coming out from slavery, generations of slavery, and they're pursued by the power, most powerful army in the world at that day. And, and, and they can't go forward because here's the Red Sea. So, well, that's it then. We're finished. We're destroyed. And then the Red Sea opens. Oh, my word. They go through the Red Sea, but here comes the Egyptian army. They're still coming. Their chariots, their horse, they're in the Red Sea. <laughs> Closes over them. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's the story of the birth of a nation. All the Psalms, they keep referring back to that day. God set them free. God changed 
everything by his intervention. And that happens again and again in the Bible. It's like Jericho's walled up to heaven. How do we ever take such a city? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Everything's reversed. Just go and take it. Gideon, 300 guys, beat tens of thousands. God steps in. It's just it's helping us to see salvation is from the Lord. It's getting us ready for the great one that's coming up in the New Testament where God intervenes and turns everything around. There's another one in 2 Chronicles 20. Remember that story where it says uh, that um, they're, they're just looking, Jehoshaphat is outnumbered. He says, I don't know what to do, this great army that's come against us. We're outnumbered. Our eyes are on you, Lord. And then God says, you don't need to fight in this battle. The battle is the Lord's. And actually, if you read that super story, they send out the choir first instead of the soldiers. And uh, a great reversal. God gives them a wonderful victory. It's all getting us ready for the great reversal of the New Testament, where God demonstrates salvation is through God intervening. Hutton's Jesus is on the cross. He's totally humiliated. He's totally proved to be a, a crook and a a cheat and a liar. There's no voice from heaven. He's, there, he's gone. Heads are down. Disciples are finished. It's all over. It's all over. Mary, passionately loving the one who has rescued her, goes to the tomb. I guess scared out of her life. There's a stone over the, uh, where he's laid in the tomb. Roman soldiers. I guess she's a bit like these guys, just coming hoping, will this all be all right? Will this be all right? Will this be all right? What's going to happen? And when she gets there, oh my word, the stone's gone. He's gone. A voice says, Mary, master. I mean, this is the biggest reversal in history. Death is beaten. Tell it with joy, you faithful. He's alive. I mean, this is the kind of, these Old Testament stories are getting us ready for that great reversal of all history, Jesus beat death. Death's beaten. It's all over. It's a wonderful, wonderful preparation for that truth. So here we've got a story that's reminding us and preparing us for God's intervention. Let's just look at it a little more closely. So as they come to the tents, as they come to the tents, and they're looking, and uh, I guess they're, they're, they're scared out of their lives, and uh, as they get there, it's amazing, there's nobody there. And I think we rush by, but just to notice what it says in verse 8. It said, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and hid them. Then entered another tent, carried from there also and went and hid them. I think I've rushed past that verse before. I really felt God kind of impressed that when I was reading this recently. I felt the first thing he impressed on me was these guys, they've got no other agenda. They're frightening. And then this. this I just think we can rush past this. And you may know this story. It's a familiar story. You may know it. The, you know, the last verse I read to you, we must not keep silent. Let's go and tell. And I've heard this sermon preached, and that's fine. And the whole emphasis of the sermon is, you know, go and tell. You are saved to serve. 
Go and be a witness, which is great. I'm not against that. But sometimes it's like, go now. It's like, you tick the box, you're saved. Go. You think, well, well I tick the box, but no, no, have you not, have you had a good bite of the food? Well, these are lepers. Haven't eaten for days. They're dying. And it says they ate and they drank and they said, gold and silver and clothes. I mean, look, look, they're in rags before. What do you think? Suits look good? Impressed? I mean, look at this. I mean, they're not, and they go to another tent. And then they hide it. And they think, wow, look at this. They're overwhelmed with what they've discovered. It's like Aladdin's cave. It's funny, I was preaching in one of our churches in Portsmouth, actually. Richard Shaw's the pastor. He said, Terry, you want to go to the bookshop in Portsmouth? What's that? That's a Christian second-hand bookshop. It's fabulous. You want to go? So I went. I mean, it was remarkable. It wasn't just second-hand. You know, second-hand can be crummy. It was ends of stock and all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's, a whole, there's the whole Lloyd-Jones on Romans. I mean, all packed. I mean, they look spanking new, but the price, I thought, oh, boy, look at And I thought, there's the whole Spurgeon Metropolitan Tabernacle, the whole lot. And, and oh, boy, there's Carson. And there's, look, at there's Douglas Moo. And the, oh, I think, oh, boy, look, oh, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do? And I found my son, Joel, who's uh, the pastor in Brighton. I, and he wasn't in those days when I did this happen to me, but I found him. I said, Joel. He said, yes, Dad? I said, I'm in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? So I said, oh, I told him about the bookshop. And a while later, I was, uh, I was in a meeting, and so I turned my phone off dutifully, and I came out and turned it on again. And there's three calls from Joel. So I Press the button, you know. And there's Joel saying, I'm going down to Portsmouth uh, today. You know, you mentioned that shop. Where's that shop? And uh, then the second call says, Dad, I'm in Portsmouth. I mean, how do you find the shop? I don't know where it is. Where's the shop? And then the third call, I press it, and he says, I'm in there. <laughs> it's like, oh. And, and this, is, this is what's happening here. It's like, oh, look what I've found. It's just overwhelmed with what is discovered. It's kind of, wow, look what I've found. I'm just overwhelmed with it. And yet, sadly, when, when you quickly get hold of, you're saved, you tick the box, you did put your hand up, right, go. You think, but did you get hold of much yet? Did you taste anything yet? Anything happened to you yet? I mean, it's like, did you, did you get, I mean, that food you've not eaten before, that gold, it's yours now. Did you, it's yours now, it's all free. Well, I can keep it, yeah, go and hide it. It's all yours. The sense of, it's mine now. We're not always filled with that sense of wonder. It's not always captivated us. I know for myself, I was six years a Christian before I knew that you could receive the Holy Spirit. I, d I didn't know that the grace of God meant I'm completely free. I didn't know. So it's safe to serve, go and tell people, okay. But I've not been filled with the Spirit. I didn't know I'm righteous. I didn't know. I thought, because when you got saved, it's like, now you received Christ. Yeah, you received Christ. Right, you're a Christian now. Yeah, I'm a Christian now. Right, just some things you need to know. Oh, yeah. Um, you must always do this every day. You read your Bible. You have to pray every day. You must pray. You must do that. Okay. And I wouldn't wear those clothes anymore. And uh, I should get your hair cut a bit differently. And it's like, do this, do this, do this. Okay, I got it. Uh, yeah. And what else do I have to do? Oh, this and this. Okay, have you got it all? Uh, I think so. Great. 
now you're a Christian. Oh, great, I feel wonderfully released. It's a <laughs> tremendous joy. I feel so free. You know, it's not like I've made an amazing discovery. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. It says, put on your beautiful garments. I didn't realize. I really didn't realize He's my righteousness, and he's the same yesterday, today, forever. I woke up this morning spotless in the sight of God. By one offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who believe, I'm perfected for all time. I didn't know that. I thought you have to do all this stuff. I hadn't got hold of what was there. I hadn't let it amaze me. I hadn't let it, wow! I hadn't got the wow factor. I hadn't been excited by what I found. Not to the point where I'm careless. Those early apostles, it says they were in the upper room, the Spirit fell upon them. They burst into the streets, drunk. Drunk. When you're drunk, you don't care. You don't care about your reputation. They were afraid they'd had an encounter with God where everything else was secondary. Nothing else mattered, really. It's wonderful. I read the story once about Buck Singh, quite a high-profile Indian Christian leader. And he said in his testimony, in the story I read, that uh, he went one day to see Mount Everest and went with a party uh, and came to the viewing spot. And he went to see Mount Everest at dawn, which they were told was a remarkable sight. And he stood there and was a party of a couple of dozen people. And he stood and he's looking at the appropriate spot and uh, he's just looking. And uh, the party, after a while, they're ready to move on. And the guide comes to him and says, well, uh, we're moving on, sir. And uh, he's just looking, really. And uh, he doesn't really want to go. And, and, uh, and the, the, the guide's sensitive to this. He said, um, actually, sir, just wait there a little longer. He said, well, I'm just frankly disappointed. Just wait there. He said, we won't go far. This is the route we'll take. You can catch us up. Half an hour, you can find us, but just wait there a little longer. He said, he waited for about another quarter of an hour, and he said, I'm staring up at the mountain, and I'm just thinking, well, I don't know, it came a long way, I'm not sure. And uh, he said, suddenly, the mist lifted. And the way he describes it is this, he said, it was as though the mountain took a great step forward. He said, I was just trying to, wow. He was staggered at what he was looking at. Overwhelmed at it. And he stood and stared, just drinking in what he was looking at. He said eventually he went on his way, but he said, he said there'd be 20 people somewhere in the world saying they saw Mount Everest at dawn. He said they would have to say they saw nothing. So it's possible to not get too excited because you didn't look closely enough. You didn't go into the tent and say, that's mine now, that's mine. And go and hide it. Oh, I treasure that. And, and it has some kind of grasp, you have grasped the wonder of what you've found. So we see here these guys are overwhelmed with what they've found. It's telling other people comes quite second. That's not their first thought. Their first thought is, what have I stumbled on? And it's interesting, it says in the Isaiah 9, which is a famous kind of Christmas passage we often the people who sat in darkness will see a great light. It talks about unto us, a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulder. You know that familiar 
passage, and it says this, we may not have taken it in, it says, they will rejoice as with those who rejoice in the harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now that's meant to help you to see how much you rejoice. But as a 21st century urbanite, it doesn't do a lot for me. Like You will rejoice like those who rejoice in the harvest. When did you last rejoice in the harvest? I go to Tesco's. You know, it's on the shelf. <laughs> I don't think, oh, harvest. I think, no, it's at Tesco's. I can get strawberries all the year round. It's like, it's just there. And Sainsbury's, Tesco's, whatever. You know, there it is. You don't, I don't rejoice in the harvest. I know friends in Kenya who do, but I, I don't. And so it's not a very meaningful uh, phrase to me. It doesn't help me compare how happy I would be. And if that's a bit obscure, what about the next line? They rejoice as those who divide the spoil. When did you last divide spoil? It's kind of a bit distant, isn't it, from us? You divided the spoil. So what is this saying? It's saying that something happens. These guys got the spoils of victory. What does it mean? Well, I just found I was kind of stirred by this spoil. So I looked up a concordance. Uh, concordance shows you every place, any word is found in the Bible. I was amazed to see how many times spoil appears in a concordance. In the Old Testament, I mean, just loads and loads and loads of references to spoil. Spoil is what comes with winning a battle. And so these tents were full of gold and silver, food and drink, clothing. And, and so spoil is often referred to. In fact, the story of 2 Chronicles 20, when I said about they sent out the choir in the battle and they won a great victory. At the end of that story, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 25, it says they were three days, three days, taking the spoil. Goods, garments, valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. More than, now, there's a secret here. There's a secret here, right? Taking the spoil is telling us something. You get more than you realized. You didn't just defeat the enemy you take the spoil. It's a bit almost like when they came out of Egypt. God said to them, take the gold as well. It's like spoil. It's like yours now. If you like, it's 400 years back pay if you have any problem with it. But it's, it's free. It's yours. You just take the spoil. It's something, as Matthias says in his commentary, it is by right of conquest. It's yours. It comes with the goods absolutely free. And it's important for us to see this. Jesus said, or at least it says of Jesus, in Isaiah 53, amazing chapter about the cross, how he was smitten of God and afflicted, and goes on through describing the cross. At the end of the chapter it says, he will divide the spoil with the strong. Even talking about the cross, that language is used. He will divide the spoil. There's it's yours because a, a, a victory was won. It's like Goliath is out there. David and Goliath. Oh, this is so scary. But David takes Goliath out. Suddenly we're all winners. But I thought we we're all losers. No, 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 David beat Goliath, so we're all winners now. And it's understanding all is transformed by this victory. It's all ours now. All ours. It's free. 
I was preaching at the um, Together in the North last summer. And they asked me to do an afternoon seminar on being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so I said, you know, I taught about being filled with the Spirit. And then I said, it's all free. And you don't have, you don't have to deserve it. You don't... See, some people say, well, I'd love to have the Holy Spirit. I don't know if God thinks I'm worthy. I don't think he, he, and you can pray for people, and then sometimes they start crying. I oh, know I'm not good enough. People say to me, I don't think I'm good enough. I say, nor do I. <laughs> well, I'm waiting till I'm good enough. How long is that going to take you? You'll never be good enough. He gives freely. It's free. He gives gifts freely. A lady came to me that evening after I taught this, and then we prayed and people scattered, a couple of thousand people there, and she came up to me and she said, I got filled with the Spirit this afternoon. She bright. I said, great. She said, I never knew it was free. I always thought I'm not worthy, I'm not ready, I don't know if I could ever. She said, when you said it's free, I, I thought, oh, I'll it then. It's, it comes with the spoil. It's because he won. Because he won, everything comes free. Everything comes free. You see, sometimes I say, Lord, if only, please would you do this? I'm trying to be... No, spoil comes with the victory. I was looking the other day, I noticed Simon Peter. You notice Simon Peter? He's walking down the road near the temple. And as he walks by the temple, there's a, a beggar. And the beggar's saying, have you got any money? And Peter responds to him and says, I don't have any money. But look at me, look at me. What I have, I'll give you. Get up and walk. And he gets up. Where'd you get that from, Peter? What I have, I'll give you. Get up. What? Where, where do you get that from? Well, just six weeks, uh, six weeks earlier, 40 days earlier, he's cursing and swearing and saying, I don't know Jesus. I've never met him. I'm not with him. Oh, but surely, no, I'm not with him. But your accent betrays you. You're from Galilee as well. You're, I'm not with him. Curse, swear, I don't know him. Didn't even use his name. I don't know him. Six weeks later, such as I have, I give you. Good up. Well, where'd you get that from? Oh, I went to the school of cursing and swearing and saying I don't know him. That's how I qualified. No, you're totally disqualified, Peter. You're a mess. But such as I have. Where'd you get it? Spoils. It spoils. It's free. I prayed for a lady a couple of weeks ago in a church in uh, Kent and uh, in the worship. I hadn't noticed she's in the worship team. She's got her hands up like this, worshipping. And uh, she came to me afterwards because I was praying with people. She said, would you pray for me? She's like, My, I've had damaged neck. I could see a scar up her back, neck here. She said, they've, they've taken out vertebrae. I've had, she said, I can't get my hands any higher than that. And I can't get them behind me. That's it. Would you pray for me? I said, I'd love to pray. I said, it's all free. It's all free. So I prayed for her. I said, come on then, lift your hands. She said, well, I'm too scared to. I said, come on, just raise your hands. So she's going, this kind of face, it was a wonderful look at her face. She's going, oh, oh. And then she stopped. Paused for a moment. I said, come on. So she went, up, up. And her friends were standing. She said, look, look, she's saying, Look, look, look. 
And then she went, she said, I haven't touched the back of my head for years. Years. She goes, oh. She said, oh. She said, oh. She said, oh. oh. I haven't done that. And then she put her hands down she said, and she held her hands behind her. She goes, oh, oh, oh. I haven't done that for years. I'm holding my hands behind my back. It's all free. It's all free. Guy just spoke to me in the previous congregation. Just said, just to say, do you know you prayed for me at Taunton a couple of years ago? You were at camp. camp. It must be three, four years ago. Said you prayed for us. We couldn't. We couldn't have children. My wife never ovulates. Said you prayed for us. She's holding a baby to the breast, and there's another little toddler. She's got two now. It's all free. It comes with. It's come. Jesus has won the victory. The spoils are all. It's all free. It's ours. We can come and take. It's free. He won a great victory. We come and receive. Jesus is alive. Jesus has won. He says, I won't leave you. I'll be with you. We're on the winning side. He's changed everything. We can just come and take. We can take. You say, well, I'd love to be filled with the Spirit. Come and take it then. Come and receive. Well, I'd love to be healed. I get pain here. Hey, well, why don't we take it? Let's receive because it's all free. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus comes to heal. Jesus to ma- comes to make us righteous. Imagine them. They've got rags on. I mean, just rags. And they find clothes that fit. And, I, you know, I stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We, we come to him and pray. We come, Lord, we're hidden totally in Christ. Like Jacob put on Esau's clothing and came to his blind father. And his father touched them and said, hey, you are my son. He said, yeah, I am. Actually, he was cheating, but it was hidden in somebody else's clothing. We come to God in the obedience of Christ. It's all free. A righteousness. And Peter, when, they, when Peter healed this guy, they said, they came towards Peter and said, why are you looking at us? As though through some holiness of ours. It's not, nothing to do with us. It came from Jesus. It's free. And so, beloved, we, we have a story here that's telling us when you've got no other agenda, you're reckless. God can do amazing things. When there are so many, well, I would, but I've got to consider we're not quite so dangerous, really. These guys were very dangerous because they had no other agenda. Are you free? Can you do whatever he says? Do we take this verse of Paul seriously? We judge if one dies, all are dead. So that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. We're going to live forever. It's all free. And then secondly, have we really found what's in the tent? Have we really taken it? Have we really been thrilled by what we've discovered? The enemy has fled. Satan's power is broken. He disarmed the principalities and powers. He made an open show. There's nothing he can hurl. There's no, he can't accuse me. His power's broken. All the handwriting that was written against me that made me a loser has been nailed to his cross. He's disarmed my enemy. He can't accuse me anymore. I'm righteous. 
Amen? We're free. We can live a completely new kind of life.